I'm James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you for the first time, Mark LaCour, by Bulwark. Yeah, finally, it's not you and me. We have our real sponsor on the show. We have our real sponsor. Yay. Yeah, and, and Bulwark is a great company. You know, they're the number one supplier of uh, FR clothing out there in the oil and gas industry. Um, uh, we've had a relationship with them for a while, and we welcome them to the show. Yeah, we do welcome them, them to the show, and we'll have more to talk about later. For for now, we just had to press record again. We got about three minutes in, and I said, Mark, please have mercy on me. I have to restart. This is my first time recording on the road, Mark. Yeah, it's usually the opposite way around. Usually I'm on the road struggling to find a bandwidth and trying to get my USB mic plugged in the computer in a quiet place. And now James has to deal with all that while I sit back here in the office. Yeah, but um, I think we're going to do better this time around. This is our first Friday Q&A. Always, always a fun show. We always joke about how it's a fun show for me because I get to um, you know, put the screws to you and see what you know. It's also a fun show for me because I don't have to go out there and find all the links and put them all put them all together and then and then maybe crash the recording by accidentally quitting Chrome. <laughs> yeah, another thing is nice is it actually gets us closer to our audience, right? This is stuff they want to know. This is not you and me talking. This is me answering or this is us answering their questions. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get right into it. Here we got Chris Creeps from Roper Technology. He is a group executive. And he has um, he has two questions. He says, I have two questions, one on economics and one out of curiosity. I read a couple of reports from the oil and gas industry for June 2016, and there are some data around production, demand, and storage that I wonder if you can shed some light on. Generally, most field demand will outstrip supply in mid-2017, plus or minus a quarter. Storage is at record highs, and there will be an additional 800 million barrels added from 2015 to 2016 called, quote, extra oil. I like this term because there is always some storage, but there is true, uh, but this is truly above and beyond. That, quote, extra oil would take 18 months to deplete starting in mid-2017. That means 2019 until oil storage is back to reasonable levels barring any major new supplies coming online or dropping off. So why would oil price recover in 2016 or 2017? Here's my curiosity. The report... Wait, let's, uh, let's, let's answer the first question. Okay, first, all right, go ahead. Second one. All right, so, so this is a great question, and this is a good example of how there's bits of information that a lot of people, even oil and gas analysts, don't understand about how you... Uh, figure out what the price of oils could be. So you're absolutely right. There's a ton of storage. There's a ton of more storage going online, and it's getting ridiculous. It's literally, it's people are renting super tankers, filling them full of oil, parking them off the coast of a country, and storing oil offshore. They're also doing it here in the U.S. in rail, right? So all these rail cars that were making a lot of money moving uh, the frack oil, it's not as big a demand. So now there's literally miles and miles of rail cars full of oil being stored on the track. And so you go, man, oil is never going to come back. The thing is, people don't figure in the cost of storage. So that storage is not free. So to store uh, in a super tanker, depending on where you are in the world, it's going to be around uh, 40 cents a barrel a day, right? And doing it in rails a little bit more, that's probably more like 70 cents a day. Well, you have to add that price because you have to pay those people to the price that you paid for the crude of oil 
and add in your profit margins you want to make, whether it's 5% or 20% or whatever. That actually increases the price that they're going to sell that oil at. And because there's variables in the storage price, that means there's going to be variables in the selling price of that stored oil. That means it's not all going to come online at the same time. The, the stuff that's the cheapest where they can make the uh, easy money is going to come online first. And then the people that are paying top dollar for storage have to wait for it to get you know back to $70, $75 a barrel before they'll dump it on the market. So that's why the price of crudes could come back. All that stored oil is not going to hit the market at the same time. It's going to be an incremental thing. And that understanding that little bit, little bit of difference is one of the things that separates, you know, the really good analysts from the guys that are just printing stuff <laughs> for, for, for their e-newsletter. But that seems like a really simple thing, though, <laughs> that, yeah. that that someone should 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 catch. Uh, yeah, and and people do catch. It. I'm not saying people don't, but it's you know, I read a lot of analyst reports, and um, and and some of them are, are unbelievably awesome, and some of them, quite honestly, suck. Um, and, and, you know, there's everything in between. So just be real careful about what you read. Look at their abstracts and see what if they're capturing all their data points. All right, good stuff. So let's go on to the rest of the question then. Here's my curiosity. The reports discuss rig counts in feet of hole. In the U.S. for onshore, oops, sorry, clicked on the wrong tab. As I, <laughs> as I just <laughs> said, you weren't going to do. <laughs> as I said, I wouldn't do. All right. So the report discussed rig count um, in the U.S. for onshore. There will be 180, 81 feet of hole, uh, 181 million feet of hole drilled. What happens to all the drill cuttings for 181 million feet at the average hole diameter? This is not an environmental concern because I see the amount of processing that it has to go through. But physically, where do you stack up that much dirt and rock? Yeah, I love this question, right? This is something that most people never would have thought of, and it's a great question. So let me tell you what happens, um, and and I'm just going to talk about what happens in the U.S. and Europe. Um, it's a little bit different in some other countries because they don't pay the same attention to the environment that we do. Um, but basically, all those cuttings come up as a slurry, as a liquid in the drilling mud. And then you need to separate, you need to get those solids out so that you can reuse that drilling mud so it doesn't tear up equipment. And there's a bunch of ways, shakers, uh, centrifugal, there's a bunch of ways to get that out. Once you get those solids out, then they're treated to remove any oily um, uh, uh, waste that that would be attached to it so they're economically friendly. Then there's a ton of things you can do with them, right? So one of the things is they bury them. Um, another thing is they actually apply them to the land surface. Um, and, and in general, it's called uh, land farming, right? So they will actually lay it across um, um, large pieces of land, let it dry out, and then a farmer will come back in and work those minerals because it's it's rock, which is minerals, back into the soil to to aid the uh, his his whatever he's growing hay or corn or whatever. And then you also have um, um, recycling, so that you can actually use those cuttings to be recycled, and they often use it on roads to build road surfaces. So there's a a, a bunch of ways to get rid of it depending on where you are. Now, unfortunately, a long time ago, uh, what offshore especially they would just dump it. And I'm so glad that we've gotten away from that because when they dumped it, it still had the oily um, um, oil. It's had oil attached to the cuttings, and they weren't treated. So here in the U.S. and in Europe, it, that stuff is really clean. We actually use it for worthwhile stuff. But but great question. It is a great question because if you Google mud logger, I think always the first one that pops up is is one that I used way back in the day on a blog post, and you see it all over the place. Is a guy sitting there with a big old stack of mud. <laughs> Right. And so to think about that at scale, it is a great question. 
All right, moving over to Levi Williamson. He says, Mark, and yeah, this is from the archives because he sent this back in March. So sorry, sorry, <laughs> we missed you back then, but I, I, I found it. And so here we go. Great show. Really appreciate all you do. Question for you. Given the recent CapEx cuts that we have seen come from some MLP space, what can we expect from a future cash flow perspective with respect to MLPs that are currently cutting CapEx? Do we have a sense for the future impact of cash flows, current distributions, cash flow distribution growth? I guess in addition, you hear a lot in the market, Wall Street analysts, who claim that the business model is broken, and I would be curious to see your opinion as someone who has been in the space for quite some time, and with that, uh, you adhere to the mantra, quote, the cure for low oil prices is low oil prices. And then, yeah. by the way, he's Midwest Divisional Director at Miller Howard Investments. Yeah, so um, uh, Levi, great, great question. Um, if you use what I'm about to tell you with your clients, you owe me something. <laughs> I don't know what. And once again, I'm not a professional stock uh, advisor. Um, I just play one on TV sometimes. So um, so MLPs, if, if people aren't familiar, it stands for Master Limiter Partnership. And it's it's real similar to, to things like a, um, a real estate trust is that the MLPs don't pay income taxes. And then they, but they can trade their shares on a stock exchange. So there's there's some advantages from a tax point of view to forming an MLP. Now, yeah, a lot of Wall Street saying the oil and gas MLP business model is broken. It'll never come back. They're wrong. Um, and, and, and Levi, you're right. It's this low oil prices are going to drive out the ones that uh, were not doing good business. And, and the ones that are doing good business um, are going to stick around and, and they're going to actually, you know, um, do well. So um, the, the, the really area of MLPs that we need to pay attention to right now in this low crude price environment in the immediate future is not producing companies, right? Um, those earnings have collapsed and and you know those MLPs either go out of business or they're gonna stay there. The the ones we gotta watch is is the pipeline companies and the, the infrastructure companies. There's some pending legislation that may change their business model, which then will affect whether the MLP is worth even looking at. But I can tell you right now, even in this crude price environment right now, um, I have some money in some MLPs, right? So enterprise product partners, they're strong, right? They're they're they have a um they have their distribution um exceeds their net income and they've done that for the last year or two so there's there's a good place another one to look at is new star energy once again um their their yields are about 11 percent even in this environment so you know there's still some strong ones out there like anything else if you're looking at investing in anything you need to do your due diligence and understand um how that business works and and where that company is going um and what challenges they face um, so, you know, it's MLPs are not disappearing. Um, it is interesting to watch some of the um, pipeline companies back out of MLPs. Um, and um, and they're doing that, once again, for business reasons, for tax reasons. But but Levi, great question. Yes, some of them are going to go belly up and you're wasting your time to even look at them. And some of them are going to come out of this low crude price environment and just rock and roll. I'm curious to hear what happens when they back out of an MLP. Do they have to reimburse shareholders? How does that work? Uh, what they do is is they so the shareholders have to agree to it first thing, and then there is some compensation, but it may just be extra shares of the new company. They they may go from an MLP to um, you know an LLC or S corp or Inc or or, or whatever. So um, there is it, it because they need buy in from the shareholders. It there is some carrot that's dangling in front of them. It may not always be cash. It, you know, maybe increased shares or uh, uh, promise of future dividends or whatever. Interesting. 
All right, so moving over to a question that you got via LinkedIn from Stephen Smith Jr. He's in sales at Omni Water Solutions. Hey, Mark, big fan of Oil and Gas Careers podcast. Yay, Oil and Gas Careers. Yes, <laughs> we have a fan of that show. Um, so, uh, you know, he listens to it every week. I didn't know you were from Louisiana. I'm originally from Lafayette. Go Cajuns. Anyway. E-A-U-X. Yeah, actually spelled properly. Anyway, the reason for my message is I am one of the many folks in the industry that has been laid off. I work I worked for a respectable services company in well completions and intervention, and I'm trying to find light in the dark forest. Fortunately, oil prices are starting to kick back up slowly but surely, but I just thought I could get your take on a young person's struggle to find his way in the industry right now. Best regards, Stephen. Yeah, so Stephen reached out to me, and I actually reached back out to him, and we set up a phone call. We've 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 actually stayed in touch through all this. So, um, you know, my advice to him is to um, look at other parts of the industry, and this, this is not anything that's new if you listen to the Oil and Gas Careers podcast. Um, and so, I actually um, made some connections for him and pointed him in the right direction. I think he actually picked up a new gig. But yeah, if you know, if you're out there and if you're new to the industry, this can be scary when you go through a downturn. You see your friends being laid off. You wonder every day if it's if you're going to be next. And the cure for that, quite honestly, is your ability to find another job. Um, if you have one or two offers in your back pocket um, and something happens to you, it's not it's not a bad thing. You just move on. Um, and so it's it's you know I I mentor a lot of young people out there, and I I one of the things I stress is once you get your new job, don't just focus on your new job. I, I know it's new and it's exciting, and you want to make sure you do a good job, but keep networking, keep um, learning about different parts of the industry and that sort of stuff is just invaluable. And it also helps you with your job. You know, if, if you learned, you know, if, um, you know, let's say you're an electrical engineer and you get hired from a, a service company like Slumberjay and you have networked and met some in, uh, electrical engineers that work for um, the refineries, you can just, I mean, just think of the information that you can learn from them and they can learn from you. So, you know, that was my, my uh, advice to Steven. And then, like I said, I think he actually picked up something new, which is good. Great. All right, moving over to Jeffrey Larson. Um, I'm going to go to the, 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 the next one of Jeffrey Larson because you had a back and forth with him, but he's subsea electronics technician, um, Mr. Mark LaCour. Mr. LaCour, <laughs> first, I want to say I'm a huge fan of your oil and gas podcast. I've listened to every episode. I'm somewhat, I'm somewhat at a crossroads. I want to be a subsea engineer offshore. It's good money and a great schedule. I can't, for the life of me, even get an interview even before the crash. I have the safe play of going back to the government work or can continue to pursue oil and gas. Can you suggest any jobs that have travel travel requirements will let me live anywhere in the U.S. and are great paying? I have 10 years electronics Navy experience and I'm going for a mechanical engineer technology degree in hopes to get a subsea engineering role. I want the world and work and will work for it. I just don't know how to get there. Thank you for your time. Again, I love your shows and spread the word to anyone that will listen up here in Virginia. Awesome. Respectfully, yeah, he, Jeffrey. Yeah, he has to spend a lot of time in Norfolk. Um, yeah, so I, once again, this is somebody that reached out to me that I engaged with. We had a couple of phone conversations, a couple of emails going back and forth. And then I, quite frankly, I had to let him know he's not going to be able to get a job as subsea engineer until probably around 2018. 
um, because there's a lag time, right? Those subsea projects, even the price of crude get, comes back, it may be a year or two before they ramp back up. And so what I suggested to him is that he takes his electronics experience and go look at one of the big process control companies that service oil and gas, like Simmons, ABB, Emerson, Rockwell Automation, Honeywell. They do a ton of work in the oil and gas industry, and they're all hiring like crazy because of what's going on in downstream. And so, um, and then I just confirmed with him, mechanical engineering is the degree you want to get if you want to become a subsea engineer. Um, and and um, so, you know, so my advice to him was to look somewhere else in this low crude price environment. And once again, this kind of goes back to, to you know, what we talked earlier to, um, to Stephen about is that, you know, find another place for your skill sets and experience in this industry. And even when the price of crude comes back, don't quit learning about other parts of this industry. So, um I'm not quite sure what uh, um, what actually um, Jeffrey ended up doing, um, but hopefully it all ended up well for him. Yeah, yeah. And Jeffrey, if you're listening, please let us know. All right. We have a tour de force type of a question from Paul Ferguson Finance. Hey, guys. Love your show. Just left a review on iTunes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you awesome. for that. Awesome. Keep up the good work. I'm a corporate guy for a company. Oh, goodness. I'll edit out the name. <laughs> Um, prefer prefer not to use the company name since I'm not an official spokesperson. All right, we'll we'll we'll, we'll cut that out. I'll beep it. Um, and I don't get into all right. So and I don't get into operations all that much, which is why I love your podcast because it helps me stay closer to oil and gas trends. Each year, I lead an enterprise risk assessment, which identifies top risks and mitigation plans that is eventually presented to the CEO and the board. I'm curious to get your thoughts on the top risks, um, are, on what the top risks are to the industry. We usually use a timeline of one to five years. Some great examples include succession planning, for example, the crew change, digital media, i.e. content marketing, SEO, social media, customer processing trends such as Amazon, um, dis- Amazon-like disruption, branding. This could also be an example or if you don't keep, um, you know, keep up, uh, an example of how if you don't keep up, you'll fall behind. Disruptive technologies, typically the risk is if you don't innovate or invest in new technologies, someone will end up passing you, for example, digital oil field, big platforms. And then he goes on and lists a few more, cyber risks, HSC, supply chain disruption, others. Also, if you could say, suggest any links that would be helpful for further follow-up. I will greatly appreciate it. So let's take some time and talk about what Mr. Paul Ferguson would like to hear. Yeah, Paul, you're also going to owe me something. So James, um, in the show notes, I I sent you a a slide uh, that we use internally. This slide is um, something we've been doing for, I think, six years now, where basically we go out and ask right around 1,000 uh, leaders in the oil and gas industry globally every year. We survey them, ask them, what are you worried about when you look out at your business over the next five years? And so we actually collect this data every year and we use this internally. And uh, Paul, I'll, I'll give it away for you for free. It'll be in the show notes. So believe it or not, even this low crude price environment, now this last survey we did was December 2015. We'll do it again in December of this year, 2016, but this data is still accurate. The number one thing, even in this low crude price environment, by 45% that the industry is worried about as far as its future business is talent shortage. Talent shortage. That's the number one thing. When I'm talking to real business leaders in the oil and gas industry, that's what they're worried about. The next thing, surprisingly enough, is public opinion, then increasing efficiencies, raising capital, 
environmental impact, and then the last thing to worry about is low crude prices. Now, um, Paul, remember, I, the survey is not upstream companies because it would, it would have flipped this around. They would be worried about the low crude prices. This is across all four segments of the industry, upstream, midstream, downstream, and service. And we tend to target middle management. So not frontline people, not the managers of frontline people, but the managers of those managers. So they're not executives yet. We found in our survey work that a lot of time the executives lose touch with what's actually going on in the field. So their, their infos, uh, their data when we survey them is a bit dated. But we find that middle management, we get the best, uh, most accurate data. So it'll be in the show notes, Paul. Uh, you're welcome to it. I hope it helps. So let's talk about that talent shortage because – I just saw a, I just saw a story this week that said oil and gas, um, you know, leaders or something to that effect, um, you know, facing talent shortage as they've laid off three hundred fifty thousand people. Well, the talent shortage is is the layoffs. The talent shortage is there before the layoffs. The layoffs are a business response for the companies in a low crude price environment because they're commodities, right? So that's what happens in any commodity. The same thing would happen. It's actually the same thing is happening now with cheese in the U.S. because there's a glut on the market. Same thing with uh, you know copper and steel and blah blah blah. So what's the shortage is uh, parts of this industry that are vital. So this industry, if, if people listen don't know, is predominantly an engineering industry with project management thrown in. That's what makes this business successful. That's what makes oil and gas successful. So what happens when you can't hire enough engineers, when literally there's not enough people going to school for engineering? What happens if there's a not enough project managers out there? You know, um, It would be equivalent to if you're in, um, if you're in let's say, uh, shipbuilding and you couldn't find enough welders. How are you going to put your ships together? You may have orders. You may have people paying you. If you don't have enough welders, you can't build the ships. So it's, it's actually something that I'm concerned about. I've been concerned about it for a while um, and I don't see light at the end of the tunnel. I think one of the things that's going to drive, you know, my prediction of technology being adopted quicker than it ever has been is this, is this shortage of engineering project management talent. You may have to use things like cognitive um, computing to, to address some of this because you can't hire enough engineers. That's exactly what I was thinking as you were talking was that technology is just going to have to fill this void. Yeah, and, and there's other things. You know, if you're a regular listener, you know that I teach at my I volunteer and teach at my local high school on Thursdays. I do that to give something back. I, I don't get paid for it. It touches my heart in an immense way and it feels really good. But that program got started by the Society of Petroleum Engineers because they realized even reaching out to colleges, there's not enough talent out there. So now we're reaching out to high schools. Right? If this trend continues, I tell this people all the time they laugh. But in five or ten years, I may be teaching kindergartners and talking to them about the benefits of going to work for Shell. I mean, it's just that's how bad this is. And so this plays right into the first point that you mentioned, succession planning. Yeah, so succession plan now, – now, succession planning would fall right into that whole shortage of talent. Absolutely. All right. I'm going to speak to digital media because that would be my specialty. And I can say that this – this industry is is so far behind and things are changing so fast in digital media right now that we are in danger of being lapped if you will by by the rest of the world meaning that the rest of the world is being trained by the internet and just the way things work that they expect for instance when they tweet a company that they'll hear back in under two minutes. That's just a stat that's out there, and it's a real stat. And there are plenty of other things that are happening 
that are training people to expect a certain level of service that does not exist in this industry. Is a lot of the time when we talk about digital media in this industry, we're talking about changing perceptions and shifting the way that people feel about oil and gas. And that is extremely important as we you know, fight for our lives in this industry. But it also is something to think about in terms of service companies working with their clients or even, or even people within organizations that have internal clients. There are things like you know, Facebook Messenger and Twitter direct messages and so forth that have trained a lot of people, a large part of the population, to think differently about how things are done and to expect different outcomes when they reach out to a company. And if we, if we don't start to increase the adoption curve of digital technology, then we are going to fall further and further behind, not only from the perspective of influencing the way people think about this industry, but also in terms of just operational efficiency when it comes to things like customer service. I think I told Mark that yeah, listen to Jay, Jay Bear's book, um, Hog Your Haters, and he mentioned in there that one customer service phone call costs $50. And it seems like a high number, but I got I to gotta imagine it's at least that much in this industry, given how, how much people are compensated that might be fielding those questions. And so when it comes to you know, planning out into the future, of what digital marketing looks like or digital media in general and communication, I think it's going to be increasingly more important within organizations to adopt new technologies like, you know, there's Yammer and Salesforce Chatter and different things like that that can help to break down those silos that exist within the companies that have 15, 17 different business units to help people to communicate better across those different units. Yeah, and James, you talked a little bit about the, the public. And so it, when you look at the survey we did, the number two thing after talent shortage that oil and gas mid-level managers are worried about for their business is public opinion. So that's, that's, that's grown immensely. Yeah, it's, it's very important. It's very, very important. So, um, yeah, ho- hope that helps, Paul. And, and apologies, we'll get, we'll get the, the, uh, the, the aforementioned name of your company out of there. All right, and then we'll move over here to Sean at Kleinfelder. He would like to know, new listener to the podcast, I was wondering if you have looked into going into the Marcellus or Utica Shale in southern Ohio and West Virginia. I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts as it has changed the U.S.'s role in the oil and gas marketplace. Thank you for your time. So I replied to Sean because there was a, there was a time when we, it was almost we had a Utica, for a short time we had Utica theme and then Marcellus. We talked a lot about them, but I was hoping maybe, Mark, we could get uh, an update on what's going on up in those plays and just, just like I said, an update on what's happening on the ground. Yeah, so, so those are huge gas plays. And so we're starting to see the maturity of the market. So one of the unexpected things, and this is not a bad thing, right? One unexpected thing is uh, Pennsylvania is increasing its seismic activity monitoring up there, um, which is which is a good thing to do. But now you're starting to see things like ethylene crackers and uh, LNG plants being built um, out there. You know, we talked about Shell doing work. There's a bunch of companies doing work out there because they have all the, the cheap feedstock. So um, 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 let's see. Um, 
Sean. I think it's called, no, no, I'm trying to think of it. I think it's Eclipse Resources. Um, has drilled the longest horizontal shaft ever <laughs> out there, which is driving efficiencies. Um, um, and so you're thinking about um, the other thing that's going on right now in this low crude price, this low gas market, is the smaller companies are the ones that are doing okay out there, not the larger companies. And then the other thing that rolls into this, and we talked about this in a previous show, is that the uh, U.S. federal government has ruled against the, the – I mean, a U.S. federal judge has ruled against the federal government from regulating fracking. That – unknown was preventing a lot of companies from dumping money in uh, Marcellus and Utica. So even in this low gas environment, things are happening out there and the, the market's starting to mature. So originally it was a gas play. Well, now we're starting to have um, LNG and ethylene crackers being built. So it's now actually start turning to a product an export play. So it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to watch um, what goes on. Now, one of the things that's unexpected, is Pennsylvania has to figure out how to deal with all its abandoned wells. And that's actually something that's going on everywhere in the U.S. Here in Texas, we're struggling with that as well. So you had the bad operators go out of business. A lot of them just walked away from their wells. And are those wells properly cased? Are they properly cemented? Um, are they, are they properly shut down? In term, yeah. it, because I've heard horror stories of guys just throwing tools down there, right? Yeah. So that's something that we'll figure out as we get there. But but uh, that part of the U.S., that gas play of the U.S. is starting to mature, and it's just a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. Mark, we have a voicemail. Yeah, I, I suspect that uh, Aaron just felt sorry for us or got tired of us begging. <laughs> but, yeah, we got our first voicemail. It's awesome. It's like We have to get a, give, give credit. It is the second one because um, uh, it's uh, Leonid, a um, friend of ours on Twitter, uh, who who I'll put it in the show notes. He he put the article out there. I liked your response. Uh, good good read. But I'm going to stick to my original call. <laughs> um. So let's go ahead and see if we can get this to play. If not, I'll put it uh, put it in the recording after afterwards. But here we go. Hey James, this is Aaron Drucker. I thought I would leave you and Mark a voicemail for your first Friday Q and A. Um, my question is in regards to the fugitive methane regulations of uh, existing in um, new gas and oil oil wells um, announced by President Obama in March this year. Um, at the 2016 Columbia Global Energy Summit um, that held at Columbia University in April this year, uh, Fred Krupp of the Environmental Defense Fund said that the cost of enforcing, of, of complying with these uh, fugitive methane regulations was one half of 1% of the wholesale gas price. And I was just wondering, is that number at all accurate? And if it isn't accurate, what is a real number? Thanks. Bye. Phenomenal question, Mark. What do you have to say? Yeah, so uh, first thing is we're talking about methane emissions, and, and basically the, this new rule is looking to limit methane emissions from pumping stations, compressors, uh, pneumatic controllers, um, wells, well completions, equipment leaks, uh, uh, leaks at natural gas processing plants, blah, blah, blah. This rule, there was no reason right to, for this rule to be in place. Once again, it's another layer of legislation that adds cost to our industry, and the reason there's no reason for this that methane that they love to use is basically natural gas. So if you're a natural gas company, your business model inherently means that you don't want to have leaks because you lose money. <clears throat> and so, um, and there's already existing laws in place. Now, as far as the percentage of cost, that's wrong too. That's only taken a sliver, a sliver of the entire industry. So that 
that one and a half percent, I believe, is only for the new well upstream operators, right? Not older wells. Older wells are, are, are have to go back and be ret retrofitted with a lot of stuff to, to meet these regulations. And that's going to increase the cost dramatically in older wells. The other thing is it, that one and a half percent doesn't address the midstream companies. And so the 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 actual cost of the industry is really hard to put a finger on. Um, but if you if, some of the data I've seen, if you take all the older producing wells and all the pipeline companies and all the newer wells, and you lump all that together and you look at what it would cost to actually meet these guidelines, it's closer to like 4%, which is a pretty significant impact. Now, what's going to happen from a reality point of view, it depends on who gets in office. <laughs> um, you know, if we get a Republican president to take office, um, th this, this Obama administration rule is either going to be significantly uh, whittled down or just made to go away completely. Now, if we get a Democrat president, most likely um, they, they will continue this work and probably announce even stricter measures. So um, a lot of this could depend on our election. Um, once again, that public information of 1.5% is skewed. It's not true. They want to take account everything in the industry. And, and there is no reason for this, for this to even be implemented. So when you say 1.5% or half a percent. Um, or half a percent, I'm sorry, yeah. Yeah, half a percent. Is it more like, I mean, you probably can't do that because you don't know if it's one and a half percent, five percent. Well, no, no. So it's, it's hard to get an accurate number because it's hard to get an accurate number on the actual ratio of older wells that need a lot of retrofitting and older wells that already have that type of equipment already there. That, that's the hard, hard way to get this. But, but the, from the data I've seen, it's more like a four percent impact to the industry, which, wow. which is significant. That is, yeah, that is quite significant. All right. Well, I was laughing pretty hard when we were getting the show notes put together because um, this is me. Man get man getting futon all dialed up for Craigslist photo shoot. And you've never listed anything on Craigslist, but I'm I'm I, I got a little bit of a system. I know how to do it. Anybody want help? I'll, I'll throw that out there. Anybody want help listing things on Craigslist? I have a very, very good sales system. But uh, presentation is everything, as we say, in the culinary world, as well as in the Craigslist world. And so I was laughing pretty hard. So uh, I've, I've been that guy. I am that guy getting getting his goods all dialed up for his photo shoot for Craigslist. We interrupt this program for a special message from our sponsor. So, James, did you know that Bulwark is the world's number one bland of FRs, you no know, flame resistant clothing out there in the oil field? And so not only are they the number one brand, but because they are so large, they're the world's largest manufacturer of FR apparel, they have the industry's widest and deepest selection of cuts, fabric, styles, and colors. So if you need have a need for FR clothing for you, your guys in the field, make sure they come home safe at night, look at Bulwark. It's some really good stuff, and it's a really great company. You're absolutely right, Mark. Check them out. If you want a chance to win a Bulwark long-sleeve FR two-tone base layer, Go to bulwark.com forward slash podcast. That's bulwark, B-U-L-W-A-R-K.com forward slash podcast. And we're going to move over to the events on deck. We have the SPE reserves and resources happening um, at the, um, was it Nundini Chef's Table Italian Kitchen and Wine Bar here in Houston, Texas, and that's happening on Thursday, July 7th. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, this is a bunch of oil and gas economists that get together on a monthly basis. Um, you come in, you buy your own meal, but they have um, they usually have an expert talking about real financial, real economic data that's affecting the industry right now. And they're going to have uh, uh, 
uh, Randy Freeman, um, who's um, a research engineer with Energy Navigator there. The chief research and, engineer at Nav- Na- Energy Navigator. That sounds like a great session. Yeah, and the cool thing about this is if you're in this world, think of the audience that's there. It's all a bunch of oil and gas economists. Where else could you go uh, network with your peers and learn something? So um, go check this out if you're in that world. I've uh, This has been on my list for over two years to go to, and I've yet to make one, but eventually I will make one. I'm gonna I'm gonna get you to make one. Um, I don't know if I if you can happen next week, but we'll we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, that's also in the evening, by the way, six to nine p.m. And then the the rice roundtable lower for longer: the impact of Houston construction market outlook. Very interesting. I was I, being that I live in the museum district. Obviously, I see a lot of cranes near my place downtown, and even my even my landlord was saying. Well, it'll be interesting, you know, with, with oil prices being what they are, and this guy just finished that tower, and that guy finished that tower, and they might be a little worried. Is that the kind of stuff that they're going to be talking about? Yeah, so they're, they're actually talking about, I think this is fascinating. I wish I could make it. I, I, I go to these rice round tables quite often, and they're always worth going to. Um, it's um, relatively inexpensive. I can't remember how much it is. And you get lunch, and you get to learn some really cool stuff. So this is about... What is the long-term low crude price environment going to do to the construction market here in Houston? Um, and, and I have some insider baseball uh, information around this. We actually have a shortage in Houston of mid-sized office space, but we have an oversupply of large office space. It's, think about that. So we have the large, you know, one or two or three floors of a building. There's hundreds of them that you can pick up for dirt cheap, but you're trying to find a quarter of a floor you can't find those anymore. So a lot of the construction you see, James, is people taking advantage of that and building office space for that need. Uh, while there's a bunch of buildings sitting empty with you know floors available. So um, if I'm gonna try to make this one, it's I, I love that tie-in between the um, the price of oil and gas and, and construction. Right there's there's a side effect that you know a lot of people wouldn't have thought of, and I'd like to see what this guy has to say. And it's actually a couple experts. Um, it's uh, Pat Kylie and Candice Hernandez. And they're uh, principals at, at Kelly Advisors. Uh, Kylie Advisors. Kylie Advisors. Yeah, so that's at the Grand Hall and at Rice University. That Yeah, next, uh, next Friday from 11 to 1. I, I might have to make it out there myself. All right, if yeah, you if would you, go ahead. If y'all end up going to this, parking's at a premium, so get there a little bit early. Unless you ride a scooter. Unless you ride a scooter. <laughs> Everybody laugh at James. I even enjoy laughing at myself about that. But I do get everywhere in half the time as y'all. All right. Moving over to um, to our first Friday Q&A that you're listening to right now. If you like this and you wanted to get your questions in, it's that time to get ready for July. Or yeah. I'm sorry, to get ready for August already. August, yeah. Yeah, so people, if you want your questions answered and a quick shout out uh, on the show, uh, submit your questions. Uh, preferably, you can leave an audio message either on James' website or Take your smartphone and just plug your headphones in, fire up audio recording, uh, rattle off your questions, and email it to James. Well, you can also go to the sh- these, these show notes uh, and, and type in your questions there. Um, but yeah, submit your questions, and uh, we would love to, uh, to answer them next month. Well, that's a really great point. I should have brought that up. So uh, our question from Aaron Drucker, who um, you might be hearing more of in the future. Aaron, Aaron just texted me that question, actually. He just yeah. um, opened Daddy. up his te- text message and, um, you know, write down the, the record feature, and there you go. And if, if not, you can also go to triberocket.com forward slash QA, and there's a uh, form that you can fill out 
um, and as well as the uh, voicemail button that we talk about way too much. All right, our LinkedIn group, I think, you know, I said it last week, we are getting closer and closer to 1,200. It continues to grow. So tell us about it, Mark. Yeah, so our LinkedIn group is not called Oil and Gas This Week. It's called Oil and Gas Global Network. And it's called that for a reason. There's a bunch of new stuff coming out. There's some invitation-only stuff coming out. We're going to have some giveaways. Uh, we have new shows. We have we, we actually have so many new shows in the works that we have to we can't keep track of. We had to make an Excel spreadsheet. So if you want to find out about any of that stuff first, it's going to be announced in the LinkedIn group first. Um, so go join if you're not uh, if you haven't joined already. And then the other thing is it's your peers. I've seen all kinds of interactions on there where people help other people understand different parts of the industry. Um, salespeople helping other salespeople with contacts. I've seen James do some copywriting for people out there. Um, you know, we, we talked a bit about the couple of young men that reached out to me uh, via LinkedIn and then I was able to help them. So um, it's, it's, it's a great place for you to learn, for you to benefit, and for you to have first line access to new stuff we have coming out. Yeah, so that's, and, and, and if you don't want to search Oil and Gas Global Network, just type in OGGN. That will that will come up, and and I really like that little shorthand that I put in there because it's made my getting to the group a lot easier because for LinkedIn isn't as nice as Facebook when it comes to that. All right, we heard that we got a review in in the questions, so we love reviews, right, Mark? Yep, reviews is what we need to make sure this show continues to rank. Uh, number one, although there's some people out there, they're chasing us. So uh, help us stay ahead of them. Uh, leave us a review. It takes all of three minutes. It also improves our search engine rankings so your peers can find us and, and you know benefit from listening to us as well. Yeah, so you can go to tribrocket.com forward slash TW reviews. Takes you straight into the iTunes store where you can leave that review. And if you like what you heard today and have any questions or comments about this particular episode, you can go to the show notes, which is a blog post, and leave a comment on this episode, which is going to be triberocket.com forward slash TW71. And you can also share the show on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook by going to triberocket.com forward slash share LI for LinkedIn, forward slash share TW for Twitter, and forward slash share FB for Facebook. Mark, I've got some training to do. You ready to get out of here? Yeah, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Go find some grease, guys. for the day.